You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. In part one of this Lodestar podcast, we're looking at why Northern Europe's hub ports are such a mess and what this means if volumes pick up. We'll consider what Joe Biden's forays into container shipping policy really mean. We have the latest on rates, the future of Airbridge cargo. We'll discuss what's happening in China and the US and a whole lot more. And in part two, I asked Senators Peter Sand for some predictions for box shipping in the coming months as the global economic picture deteriorates. Could we even see a contraction in 2022? And what would this mean for spot and contract freight rates? In short, is winter coming for some trade lanes? Aside from Peter, I'm joined on this episode by a sense Arian Hormaviti, Alex Lenane, Lodestar publisher, Mike Wackett, the Lodestar Sea Freight correspondent, and the senior analyst for ports and terminals at Drury, Eleanor Hadland. What we saw in the US is while it only takes a short while for congestion to build up at the terminal, it takes a lot longer to unwind the situation. So we're probably going to be seeing congestion across the European ports until after the 2022 peak. Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Today, for your delectation, we have all the latest freight industry news and trends as key economies teeter on the edge of recession. We try to decipher where exactly freight markets will be heading in the weeks and months ahead. In this year of constant, endless disruptions, it really is a case of whack-a-mole for supply chain managers around the world right now. Just a couple of quick announcements first. If you didn't know already, this podcast and our back catalogue are available on all major podcast platforms as well as on the lodestar.com for free. And if you want to contact me directly with any thoughts and comments, I'm on mikeking121 at gmail.com. Now, let me introduce two colleagues from the Lodestar who probably really do not need an introduction, but that's my job. So here goes. First up, it's the evergreen Lodestar shipping guru, Mike Wackett. Hello, Mike. Nice to be here again. Mike, when I said evergreen, just it's just me and you talking, no one's listening. Did you think about a ship? Come on, tell the truth. Yes, that's the first thing you think of, isn't it, really? It's, it's quite a strange one, yeah. Ah, those sister ships keep getting in trouble, don't they? And uh, Mike's tag team partner today is the tremendous Alex Lenane, publisher and backbone of the Lodestar, protector of free speech and journalistic integrity and defender of the Elgin Marbles. Alex. Hi, <laughs> Mike. I might have just made that last part up, but welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. What an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Possibly overdone. <laughs> Alex, as I mentioned there in the intro, uh, another week, more disruptions. If it's not lockdowns, it's strikes, it's threatened union action. If it's not strikes, it's staff shortages. We've got roaring inflation. We've got fuel prices soaring. Endless supply chain blockages keeps bringing up. How is the air cargo sector coping with all this? Well, it never seems to stop, does it? In the past month, we've had truck strikes in Korea, which has affected the computer chip industry quite severely, as well as other sectors. Uh, the strikes in Europe are 
seem to be hotting up. And of course, China came out of lockdown. Now, those sorts of disruptions normally would lead to a big boost in air freight. And if, if you look at the US retailers, they've been trying to shore up their inventories before the back school season, which many have said they'll do via air freight. But in fact, volumes have been uh, falling. They've been creeping down in June and there's no evidence of this sort of expected surge out of China yet. And capacity is, is nudging up. And I, I just saw some figures that show load factors are now below pre-COVID levels, particularly on the Atlantic. So yeah, quite a mixed, quite a mixed bag of results. And how's all this affecting prices? What are we seeing on the TAC index at the moment? Well, the combination of the of the lower volumes and sort of slightly bigger capacity has meant that pricing has, of course, slipped a bit. The index has dropped marginally in the last week or so. But if you look at out of Shanghai to Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, you're seeing high single-digit percentage declines in rates. To Europe, it's less dramatic, but the pricing's been lower than ever anyway. It's still worth remembering, of course, those rates are up more than 60% than last year to Europe and up more than 30% last year to the US. So pricing's still elevated, but it is slipping down. Mike, talking about logistics disruptions, you've been looking at the current struggles of Northern European container hubs. What's going on there? Well, this week it's eased a little bit, but that's not saying much because basically looking at some of the advisories from the carriers, we're still seeing yard density levels of 80 or even 90% across the three main hubs of uh, Rotterdam, Antwerp and Hamburg. And when you consider that uh, efficiency at terminals is impaired above 70%, uh, that shows you how these terminals are, are gummed up basically with long dwell time imports and custom blocks, Russian imports as well, et cetera. And, you know, it really, really has been a problem for the carriers. I mean, Alpha Line, I did a, a survey for some vessels arriving in China in, in May. And I think the average delay was something like 20 days with some of them up to, up to 30 day late. So effectively these are new blank sailings or sliding sailings, whatever you like to call it. But the, the delays really have been quite bad in North Europe and really they're starting to ease, but with other issues going on, such as the warning strike in Hamburg and negotiations there, the national strike in Belgium, other issues coming up, it's, it's really not looking particularly good, but having said that. The, the advisories indicated a small improvement this week. What are the workers striking for in Germany and Belgium, Mike? Are we expecting more strikes later this summer, perhaps? Well, I think, I think we are. I think anybody as old as me will remember the winter or winters of discontent in the seventies. And I think we're heading for the summer of discontent, such as for instance, the UK, we have the rail strike going on. We, we have disruptions everywhere. And of course. Really, it's the race to the bottom, unions demanding inflation, busting wage deals. And so this is a sort of vicious circle, really, of, of where do we go from here? I mean, what is a decent wage increase? Now, if, you, if you're looking at inflation hitting 10 or 11% or maybe even higher, I mean, if you're, if you're a union leader, are you going to recommend to your members that they accept an offer of 3%? 
well, you probably won't keep your job if you do that. So it, yes, I mean, it, it, it's just not looking good on the industrial front. German dock workers haven't been on strike for decades. Yet, even whilst these negotiations were going on, they fired a, a, a warning strike across the bows, and they've shown that they can be as militant as anybody else. Mike, Alex mentioned earlier that there was a lot of confusion about what sort of volumes we would see coming out of China as lockdowns were eased in the air freight side. We haven't really seen a great deal of volumes being flown out which makes it a cloudy situation as we're looking forward to the next sort of few months. But just with those problems that we already have in Europe, if there was a bit more cargo, a bit more higher volumes coming in in July, August, how set are they in terms of handling more imports? I think they would have the problems. And this is really what they definitely be concerned about with his industrial action in, in Hamburg. But, you know, I, I think the, the jury is, is still out on that one in terms of peak season. And I even heard at Multimodal last week, some of the folks talking about, you know, peak season could be a damp squid this year because we've got all this perfect storm of inflation, energy costs, et cetera. And there's definitely been a lot of orders been canceled, but I think even the carriers that I was talking to really. They haven't quite got that visibility yet into the peak season, but they're obviously just keeping their fingers crossed that it will be a good one for them. I'll be uh, picking up on some of those themes when I ask uh, Zenitus Chief Analyst Peter Sand, is winter coming for container shipping in part two of this podcast? But as you say, Mike, lots of unknowns around the peak season. And I'd also mention some of those ports are also dealing with buildups of export boxes, MTs, problems around Russian sanctions and where some of that cargo has been, been left. Consultants at Drury have been analyzing where precisely lines are losing time, particularly in Northern Europe, and looking at some of the long-term reasons for this loss of terminal productivity. I asked Elna Hadland, Senior Analyst for Ports and Terminals at Drury, exactly how much longer container lines are taking for port calls now compared to 2019 averages. Well, Mike, our analysis of the major North European ports indicates that the total call duration in 2022 has been on average around 50% higher than the 2019 level. And therefore you can see why carrier schedules are basically pretty much out the window at the moment. And where exactly is this time being lost on these port calls? Well, it's partly pre-birth waiting. And obviously if a vessel needs to queue to get to its berth, then that's an immediate and very obvious sign of delay. But that's not really the big issue in Europe. What we've really seen is a steep increase in terminal time. And average call length is now around 40% longer in 22 than it was in 2019. So overall cargo volumes certainly haven't increased by anything like 40%. So we've looked into the reasons why terminal time is so much longer now than it was pre-pandemic. And, and is that down to the ports themselves or is it down to carrier strategy or is it down to a mix of factors? Well, I think we need to look at the post-pandemic recovery in a couple of phases. So back in 2020, all the initial congestion we saw was partly due to this huge influx of cargo when ports were still struggling with lockdown and labour shortages, which were affecting their workforce. Since then, that situation has been a little bit more normalised things are operating more normally, but carriers have taken the decision to streamline their port calls because they were struggling to stay on schedule. And by reducing the number of port calls in each loop, that's a good way to save time. 
However, the effect of this has really been a steep increase in cargo exchanges across the major hubs. And when we talk about cargo exchange, what we mean is proportion or, or the total volumes of cargo on a port call. And this would be either expressed either as a total number or as a percentage of the vessel capacity. And this is what really underpins the increased terminal time. Taking Antwerp as an example, the average exchange was up by more than 20% compared to the first quarter of 2019. And in the first quarter of 22, it was up by over 16% in Rotterdam, again, compared to first quarter of 2019. Now, this is a really massive increase in parcel size, and it puts this terminal under real pressure. Because these higher exchanges means that yards need to accommodate far higher peak volumes. And this actually results in lower terminal productivity. So it becomes almost self-fulfilling that terminals will become congested. So we're now tracking port productivity across all the major European hubs. And we calculate that the average terminal time per thousand TEU of port throughput has increased to around 0.5 days across these ports in the first quarter of 2022. And that's almost 40% higher than it was in the same period of 2019. And we see notifications from carriers, for instance, Hapag Lloyd has warned that high yard utilizations impacting operations in Antwerp, Rotterdam and Handwerk. And what they also note is that off-dock yards, which would usually act as a buffer for terminals, are also very full with frustrated Russian cargo. Dwell times are also higher, and that's due to delays in transshipment and insufficient import collections. And this certainly isn't going to be helped any by the transport strikes and dock worker strikes in Germany. We've also seen that terminal times for the ultra-large container vessels have also increased steeply. And they're taking on average more than a day longer in 2022 in Rotterdam and Hamburg than they were in 2019. And Elna, in the US, much of the congestion that we've heard so much about during this pandemic that has been faced by carriers and shippers has actually been, certainly on the West Coast, has been pre-birth rather than at the terminal itself, which is what we're seeing in Europe. Why is there this difference between Europe and the States? Well, when we look at the US market, there's actually very few major gateway ports. And specific to this market, the cargo is really highly captive due to the high density of distribution centers around the main LA Long Beach hub, but also due to the onward intermodal connections from these gateway ports, which are pretty much locked in. Scale matches the scale of the terminals. In contrast, there's actually more port choice in Europe. And at the start of the recovery, there were a number of ports with pretty low utilization levels, for example, Willemshaven and Zeebrugge. And these were useful, if probably somewhat inconvenient solution, when carriers were faced with the choice of waiting or diverting. So I think another factor that's at play is in Europe, we've been helped by the really well-established feeder network. And there's two elements to this, which have helped keep waiting time low. First, the high proportion of transshipment cargo, which is handled at the major European hubs, means that carriers can be far more flexible on port choice for at least some of their cargo. And secondly, if the cargo did end up in the wrong port, then the carriers have already got these established relationships with feeder operators to provide the solution to cargo being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Excellent, Elna. And just one final question, if I may. What or, or maybe it's a better question, way of asking this would be to say, what can carriers and ports in Northern Europe and beyond do to Im improve port productivity and address some of these challenges? Or is it just really a case of waiting for demand to maybe subside slightly? which it could well do with all these bearish economic indicators that we have right now. Yes, the economic headwinds are building, but with the peak season coming, then there appears to be pretty much little hope of respite for the ports because there's probably low to no chance of the backlog being cleared before the volumes do start to pick up somewhat for the traditional um, third quarter peak. But the problem really didn't actually arise from too much demand. 
it's due to a change in the scheduling of cargo, which has created these really massive peaking factors. But what we saw in the US is while it only takes a short while for congestion to build up at the terminal, it takes a lot longer to unwind the situation. So we're probably going to be seeing congestion across the European ports until after the 2022 peak. I think it's really important to note, though, that the root cause likely lays outside of the terminals. So before anyone starts calling for more berths and bigger yards and more yard equipment, then the supply chain needs to work together to ensure that there's actually going to be sufficient road and rail capacity or even longer hours at distribution centres to make sure that cargo flows can be maintained because the terminals are being asked to act as intermediate storage, be it for Russian cargo or be it for cargo that can't be moved out because there's a shortage of truck drivers or that there's a shortage of space in distribution centres. Elna, you, you mentioned the peak season there. What is Drury anticipating in the third quarter compared to, say, the third quarter of 2021? We are going to have a peak season, but it's certainly not going to be as buoyant as pre-pandemic peak seasons. There's a lot of economic headwinds building in Europe, the impact of the Ukraine invasion, inflation at record levels. Drury will be downgrading its forecast in our forthcoming container forecaster report. So it's certainly not going to be a stronger year-on-year growth in third quarter 22 as we saw in third quarter 21. Elm Hadland, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Mike, just one other final point on uh, the European logistics landscape at the moment. What's going on with the European barge network, which does play a crucial role at, at so many of those northern European terminals? This really has been a torrid time for the barge and feeder operators. Um, I mean, the big ships are, are blocking the berths. Uh, terminals are all gummed up with boxes that should be moving out in big lumps on, onto barges and onto feeder vessels. But, you know, the you know, barges and the feeder vessels can't get on the berths, so it's a, it's a vicious circle. A, a feeder operator I know quite well told me, the other day that he was talking about something like four days to get one of his ships onto one of the terminals at Rotterdam. And bearing in mind that often they're having to cover two or three terminals. He told me that in Dublin Rotterdam services that would normally take six days, they were having to basically work on nine days, maybe even 10 day schedules. So effectively they're just sort of running on, on butterfly operations. So it really does need for somebody in those ports to give dedicated berths to barges and feeder operators so they can move out these great big lumps of cargo that are just gumming up the, the terminals. Alex, we're also seeing similar sorts of issues at airlines and airports in, in Europe and beyond. And it's not, well, some of it's due to staff shortages, but there's also a lot of poor planning around. How's this playing out for air cargo? and? Do you see any improvement this summer? Well, the headlines, as we've seen in the last few weeks, have all focused on the passengers. There, there are so many challenges, I think especially in the low-cost short-haul industry and at airports. Um, airlines and airports lost a lot of staff during COVID and they're not coming back. There's difficulty getting security clearances, which takes a long time. And in that time, people have gone off to work for, you know, Tesco delivery or, or whatever. And they don't really want to work on airports anymore. I think some airports are saying they've got 20% fewer staff than what they need for this summer. There's been less focus on cargo in the main press, but I think the problems in cargo have been around for a while now. I think they've been struggling. The ground handler has been struggling with labor shortages for a while. 
I also think it's worth pointing out that airlines are still on their knees overall, not in cargo so much. So the industry is expected to make overall losses of nearly $10 billion this year, which is much better than 2020 and 2021. But it shows the overall lack of money they have with which to attract labour. You compare that with the shipping lines. This year, they're expected to make about $300 billion in profit. And they can't get it together to work properly either. So I think there is there's something in that. Um, one thing that might change this summer is the um, end of exemptions. Well, it will change the end of exemptions for passenger freighters in Europe. Some forward is already worried about this. But I would think handlers are probably quite pleased because they're very labour intensive and require heavy numbers of staff and take a long time. But I think it might be a quiet summer volume wise. So any disruption in cargo, I think, should be manageable. But those may be famous last words. I'll be speaking to a leading forwarder shortly about the supply demand balance for air cargo as we look forward to summer. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, of course, had a big impact on freighter supply, not least because Airbridge Cargo's freighter fleet are no longer available to shippers. But Alex, there's a possible solution for ABC that you've been covering on the Lodestar.com. Well, yeah, people are pretty tight-lipped about this at the moment because it's very sensitive and it's, it's a difficult one. So sources have told me that Etihad and Airbridge Cargo have been in talks to get ABC's 747 fleet onto Etihad's aircraft operating certificate and effectively restart operations. It's, it's very difficult. On the one hand, it would be great to see ABC flying again and for the staff to keep their jobs, of course. On the other hand, the idea is that ABC's aircraft, which are on leases, the leases are bought out. So the aircraft are bought out and they go over to Etihad. So the question is, will aircraft lessers be able to agree legally because they're not allowed to work with Russian companies? Will any revenues end up in the hands of the Russian state, which will obviously not be popular with governments in Europe and the US? And then Alexei Isaacin, who's the founder of ABC and Volga Dnieper, was last week sanctioned by the UK because he did a deal with the Russian state for air cargo. That's going to make things even more complicated in getting ABC back in the air. The plan was that it would be flying again by the end of the year, but I imagine there are some high-level conversations now with governments, lawyers, and everybody, which might delay that process. A lot of ABC staff are apparently already in the UAE, and there's a board meeting with Etihad on June 30th. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch, but I, I don't know whether the airline can legally be saved or not. Thank you, Alex. And on that point, let me bring in Arian Hormaviti, who is the Executive Director for Air Freight Product at Ascent. Arian, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Arian, we've been hearing on this podcast earlier about these logistic bottlenecks that keep popping up worldwide. Where are you seeing the severest air freight operational challenges at the moment? Well, I would say, Mike, there are three of them. Uh, namely, there are tight capacity, labor shortages, and infrastructure shortfalls. When we're talking about tight capacity, we're looking at lack of passenger aircraft in the air freight market, the ban of freighter aircrafts out of China and the EU, and also the sanctions against Russia. Now, that alone took away Airbridge with their 12th and of 124s and about 17 747s. 
13 of which were the 800 series with 120 ton capacity. And that had scheduled regular flights coming out of Europe and Asia into the United States as well, too. The other part is the labor shortages, especially in passenger operations. We're going to see it on a regular daily basis. And I think it reached a record this weekend with 900 flights canceled in the US alone. In Europe, they had about the same issues as well, too, with about over 3,000 flights canceled this last weekend. And that's mainly due to the lack of staffing. So what happened during the COVID era is that a lot of airlines laid off staff, and now they're having a hard time hiring these people back. I heard that Singapore airport is offering about $18,000 as a sign-in bonus, which is about the same as the yearly wages in some cases there. In Australia, they have the same issues. People are not interested in working airlines, but they're moved on to what they consider to be a safer bet, safer industries with less cyclical allow variations. And the third one is the infrastructure shortfalls, especially we've seen it in the U.S. East Coast, JFK Airport, and other places where there's lack of warehousing space, right? Uh, there's not enough space for the airlines and ground handling agents to break down the firm. You mentioned these global staff shortages, presumably considering how long it, in many jurisdictions it takes to, to get someone security clearance to work at an airport or to work on an airline. Are you expecting that this is something that will continue to be a problem, certainly throughout the summer, perhaps beyond? Absolutely. There will continue to be a problem even beyond the summer. It takes a while to hire people with the right skill set, to bring them on board, to train them, and to basically put them in the operations where they are. So that will take a while. It's not going to be something that will be fixed overnight. Another issue with the ground handling agency is they have been able to retain staff due to the great resignation that they've had, especially on the U.S. side. And that's going to continue to occur in the future as well, too. Arian, how do you see the supply-demand balance for air cargo right now? Well, on the supply and demand balance, what transpired is on the last couple of months is that the demand was softer than expected. And I think that what kept the market a little bit in balance as well, too. For example, the demand fell about 11% in April as compared to the previous year. Now, I mean, we're speaking about a month and a half ago, everyone, including charter operations, like they're expecting a rush after COVID lockdown, you know, in China, but that didn't materialize, right? The COVID lockdown ended, but the demand just wasn't there. It wasn't as strong as expected. And I feel there are several reasons for it. One is that the BCOs increased their inventory levels during the past few months in order to have it as a buffer should there be more restrictions down in the future. For example, a company like Samsung told their suppliers to not bring any new orders, nor new freight into their facilities. Target in the U.S., a big, big box retailer, is another example where they have huge inventories to the fact that it's affecting their bottom line. So that's what transpired there. Also, another thing is that new export orders have been shrinking. According to IATA's latest market update, there's been a decline in the export orders throughout all regions with the exception of the United States. That said, it doesn't mean that the rates will deteriorate any further. And the reason for this is twofold, as we mentioned a little bit earlier as well too. One is the removal of freighter aircraft from flight schedules. So China and the EU 
will not allow the main deck both passenger aircrafts to be loaded anymore. So that's out. And also the effect that the banning of Volga neighbor and also Airbridge has had in the market with all their capacity taken out. Another thing is especially, but this is true more on the Asia and Europe trade lane. European aircraft now cannot fly over Russian territory. And as a result, they can carry less capacity and they have to carry more fuel. So that's decreased the capacity that's on that lane as well too. So how does all of those variables that you've just outlined there, Arian, how does all that play out in the fourth quarter? You know, we've got these lower air export indicators. Are we looking at a lower demand? What does this mean for the festive season? Well, the fourth quarter, like has always been, traditionally has been the peak season in air freight. Now, where the market is going to be is anyone's guess during this uncertain times. But I feel there are six factors that will shape it. And namely, these are inflation, consumer confidence, ocean freight market, COVID travel restrictions, and the airlines labor shortage. On the inflation, or right now as we speak it, the inflation in the UK is about 9%. Bank of England is expected to reach about 11 in the next coming months. Uh, the US also has the highest inflation in the last 40 years, and Federal Reserve just raised the interest rate by 75 points. It's the same in Europe and other countries throughout the world as well, too. Now, the inflation, the way they fight is, is through the raise of the interest rates and raising the interest rate will make it harder to borrow or purchase goods. It's going to increase the cost of goods bought and sold. So that's going to have an effect on demand. Demand might be decreased as a result. The other part is the consumer confidence. The consumer confidence index is supposed to be coming out this week in the U.S. And if the consumer confidence is going down, obviously that's going to have an impact on the economy as a whole and also in the transportation cost and the air freight market. COVID travel restrictions also play a role here. We still don't see any passenger flights between China and the U.S. yet. Uh, so that belly capacity is not in the market. Should they double board, then we expect more capacity and the rates to hold a little bit or costs maybe go down a little. Airlines labor shortage is not going to change. There's lack of pilots, but mainly on the ground handling side that adds to the delays at the airports. And that's going to keep the costs on the air freight on the higher side. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a... There's quite a few, I think we'll call it frighteners being put on the global economy at the moment. But one of the things that we do know with all this uncertainty around is that container lines have been entering the air cargo sector. They've built up these huge stockpiles of cash and they need to get rid of them. Do you see these guys as offering more capacity and helping alleviate that supply demand balance that is in your favor? Or maybe do you see them trying to offer a better or a different type of service? Or do you just see them as disruptors you're competing with? Well, like I see them all of the above. Now, all these three European ocean carriers have taken different approaches of how they're getting into the air freight market. Maersk is going after the e-commerce vertical and they want to compete in that space and that space alone, it seems. Then if I was an e-commerce service provider, yeah, I would definitely be worried and I'll have to look into them closely and try to do things in order to be competitive against them. CMACGM has taken a bit of a different route, more on a traditional airline where they've partnered with KLM and Air France 
and to get capacity and get access to their booking system. So that's a plus when it comes to adding capacity to the Europe to US trade lane and Asia to US as well too. MSC, it's a bit different. Um, they're trying to buy ITA Airlines, former Alitalia with Lufthansa, but I don't know how they would be, how would they would impact the market or even impact the freight forwarders, the other freight forwarders in any way. Considering that the main hub for ITA Airlines is Rome, and that's not considered to be a major cargo hub in any way, shape, or form. We all know that the major air freight market in Italy is out of Milan and Northern Italy. So that remains to be seen. But that's why I thought how this will play out when it comes to the street carriers coming in in the marketplace. So it's a case of watch this space. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Arian Hormaviti, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Alex, Container Lines investing in air cargo, as I was discussing there with Arian. This is another story you've been covering on the Lodestar. Maersk is claiming that its air cargo services will be more integrated than those available from forwarders and airlines. Are they onto something? I think they might be, yeah. They told customers recently that they, well, they implied that air cargo hadn't been professional enough the way it's run. And there'd be quite a few in the industry who would agree with that. I think Maersk is looking at air cargo as it looks at other parts of its supply chain businesses, you know, like brokerages and trucking and so on. It's just another service to offer to its shipper customers. It makes sense. It's going to, it can control its products. It can um, provide the services its customer wants, and and it's not taking vast amounts of risk. Um, so yeah, they might well have a decent product there. And as Erian uh, mentioned as well, MSC and CMA CGM have rather different uh, approaches than Maersk. Uh, McKinsey has done some recent analysis on the difficulties these container lines might face, and how some of these investments are jo- not just as simple as shipping lines buying up the air cargo capacity. There's also a fair amount of uh, cross-pollination in these investments. It, if, is that the right phrase, perhaps, Alex? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very good phrase for it, actually. The lines are becoming rather blurred and it's all getting a bit complicated. There's some high-level box line executives getting into air and it, it could shake up the market a bit. So we've got CMA CGM's Rodolfo Sade now is on the board of Air France KLM with investment, which means that CMA, CBA and Air France KLM are all working together. And then there's a slightly less obvious tie-up. You've got Klaus Michael Kuna owns 53% of Kuna Nagel, 30% of Hapag Lloyd, and now 10% of Lufthansa and is their second largest shareholder after the German government. But then you've got Lufthansa doing a deal with MSC for its airways, which is the new Italian airline. It's starting to get complicated. And um, I think watching Klaus Michael Kuna will be an interesting way to watch the uh, market develop. Lots of big players are very active at the moment. And possibly this gets more interest in the stock market decline. And some of these asset prices also fall um, when you think about the how much uh, these war chests, the container lines have built up. But is the end game, Alex, is this all about winning direct control or direct access to BCOs in the search for long-term logistics contracts and that the leverage for this is now the ownership of the physical capacity at some point down the road? I think to some extent that's true. 
the shipping lines are comfortable with selling directly to shippers. Airlines very famously have not sold direct to shippers and are uncomfortable doing so. They like tripartite relationships. Um, so I, I do think that there could be some significant differences in the way that air freight is sold in some companies. I'm hearing from sources, the um, Air France KLM relationship with Siva is, is concerning to some forwarder customers. They're worried they could lose capacity. They're worried they might lose business to shippers, which will be, you know, stolen by Siva or CMA. So yeah, there they, they could be some changes coming up. I guess so there's, con I mean, it's asset light forwarders, schedule carriers. They've all got reasons to, to be concerned by some of these developments. Uh, maybe some of them are facing a, a battle for customers. But as I alluded earlier, let me uh, throw something else out there. We've seen these, some of these big liner purchases, but they've, they've got this cash in abundance and uh, the stock prices are falling. So some of these assets are getting a little bit cheaper, depending on which markets we're looking at. Are we expecting, uh, to both of you, are we expecting a busy summer for M&A activity? I don't actually think so, Mike. I think, I think everybody's looking to take a step back, take a breath and see where they are. Just watch what's going on with demand, I think, before they start looking at anything else. I just think there's going to be that sort of like pause whilst people see how supply and demand uh, stacks up and see how, obviously, the peak season goes, etc. Yeah, I, th I think I think Mike's right. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market at the moment. Um, but then there's a lot of cash as well, and it's kind of got to go somewhere. One of the things I think is interesting this month is that All Seas uh, UK Forwarder has invested $150 million in starting a shipping line. And I think that it might not be obvious M&A, but there might be some more vertical integration with people putting their cash into assets, for example and changing the market that way. Thanks both. And finally, I, uh, I always fear a car crash coming when I hear politicians talking freight or most politicians. Now in the US, President Joe Biden has been uh, attacking container lines. He's also signed into law the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, primarily to make it easier for exporters to find boxes by giving the US shipping regulator the, the Federal Maritime Commission, the power to delve more deeply into container line business practice. Mike, do you think this will work and are lines being unfairly demonized? I, I certainly think that some of the items there and particularly what they've done with demurrage and detention, uh, which has really been quite a, a gravy train for, for some of the carriers, I think that's going to work. I think the carriers will feel that they, they're being watched a lot closer. Um, as I understand it, they have to each have a compliance officer that has to report only to the managing director of the company or the CEO. But, you know, obviously I, I certainly take the point that in regard to who's to blame for all of this, and of course, uh, Joe, I think if it had consulted with the FMC, I mean, Rebecca died just weeks ago produced uh, a consultation report and recommendations after a two-year investigation, which she concluded there was just no evidence whatsoever of any collusion between the container lines. And it was simply a factor of supply and demand. And obviously it's really been 
for the carriers and the silver lining of, of COVID because going into COVID, they were looking at bankruptcies. The demand was falling off a cliff 25, 30%. Ships were being tied up. A demand was, would, would gone completely, but as we know, it, it turned out differently. And, um, I think it's, it's unfair to criticize the carriers for that because there's just no evidence that, I mean, it was just purely supply and demand as, as Rebecca Dunn, uh, concluded. Alex, do you think we're going to see more oversight from regulators into freight markets moving forward after events of the last two years? Yes, I do. I think there's going to be a lot of court cases coming up from upset customers, but perhaps it may be a little cynical, but um, where there's money, there are lawyers and regulators who all want their piece of it. So I imagine that government's lawyers are all going to want their cut from the inflation creating shipping lines, to be honest. So yes, I think there'll be a lot more oversight and a, and a lot more fines. Alex Lane, Mike Wackett, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Welcome to part two of our penultimate episode before the Lodestar podcast takes a much needed summer break until late August. And who better to welcome summer? even as the global economy threatens to turn frosty, than Senator Chief Analyst Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? I'm also looking forward to a summer break here very soon, but it almost breaks my heart that this is a penultimate episode. So, uh, so when will you be back with more from the Low Star Podcast, Mike? We've got one big interview at the start of July, and then we return in mid to end August can't wait for that Mike. A good break but there's a lot going on at the moment Peter uh, and let's just turn right to all of those many many multifaceted things that have been happening these last few weeks and that we are looking to as we work out what's going to happen as we move towards Q3. There's been so much discussion about inflation, inventory levels in Europe and North America, recession including in that key US market. We've got a cost of living crisis. How are you looking at the demand picture for global container shipping right now? Is winter coming? It almost sounds like something Trump tweeted back when he was, say, dovetailing on, was that an Avengers movie or was that the Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones. It was Game of Thrones. <laughs> winter will be here, at least in the there's this northern hemisphere that uh, that you and I are currently uh, working out of. Uh, but in terms of much lower freight rates come winter, I would have to say to, to global shippers that you should not necessarily jump 100% into the spot market anticipating rates to, uh, say, dive deeply into to where they pre-pandemic were or perhaps even uh, lower because there's at least in my crystal ball, so much that needs to be cleared before we can really uh, enjoy the cheap uh, freight rates on a global scale that uh, that we once did in uh, in the global container shipping supply chains. And winter coming, we are seeing an easing. We're seeing a slowly move towards something that we could frame as the next normal. 
but I would say that uh, that you and I are the pinch point right now. We as global consumers are definitely facing not only especially higher inflation coming left, right, and center from uh, from from energy crisis, but also from uh, from some shippers being capable of pushing on higher logistics costs also onto us. And then of course the whole conundrum about interest rates also coming into to the picture. To some seasoned economists, I'm not including myself in, in, in this case, I may have gray hair, but not that much. But they have definitely been telling me inflation is the key thing to watch out for for more than a couple of years now. Uh, I must say from time to time in a weak moment, I, I did not expect it to come around uh, this forceful. But I must say that I'm afraid it's here right now and it's, it's hitting hard. Uh, all of a sudden, following decades of low interest rates, of low inflation, we are now going to uh, to also see a, a much murkier picture in terms of, say, give me a brief overview of the market and we just look at the volumes and, uh, and uh, sales with no attention whatsoever being paid to inflation. Now we, of course, need to deflate in order to also get to grips with what's being moved in terms of volumes. And not only in terms of value, which is sometimes uh, a little bit uh, misleading in terms of conclusion. But I think in the overall picture, Mike, uh, I think we're more heading towards the autumn than the winter right now, not only in terms of real seasonality, but certainly also in terms of container shipping market seasonality. You mentioned inflation, and of course, we're not the only people who've been caught out by the rate of inflation and how quickly that's really hitting these economies. How does that play out for volumes in your view? Well, if we look at what container trade statistics have just put out in terms of the first four months of, uh, of this year, as compared to last year, global volumes are down 2.4%. And it's been trending down ever since January. And to us, it's, it's not, say, a massive surprise, because when you really think about it and look at the uh, massive import volumes into, especially North America, going up by some 27% in the full year of 2021 as compared to 2019, at some point in time, it had to eat to cool down. There are an extent to to how many pellets and bikes that you can uh, that you can shuffle under your bed, right? So, uh, so, so having seeing an easing uh, in in this case is only natural. Uh, but I think it, uh, it's surely coming as a surprise to some if you are following consensus estimates. Uh, it's, it still appeared uh, a month ago as uh, as a no brainer to everyone that uh, it was uh, three or four percent volume growth this year, just as any normal year. I think we have been candid saying that, okay, we do not necessarily expect volumes to grow this year. Right now, we even see that it may fall. Uh, it may not fall all the way down to minus uh, three or 4%, uh, but at least it, it could easily establish itself around minus 1%. That's at least uh, where we see the basis uh, right now. And of course, when you see also volumes coming down, you also do see rates coming down, especially on the spot market. Of course, we have seen uh, spot rates on selected trades uh, fall uh, 15, 20. Uh, some trades have even seen spot rates falling 30% since the start of the year. So obviously what it seems, what it also tells me is that when you're trying to analyze, try to explain what really goes on in the freight rates by what is happening in terms of volumes, we are at such a high level that only say small changes to volumes also bring down or takes a lot of say hot air out of the the rates. Uh, so if you uh, if you look at uh, demand coming down 2.4 percent and you see rates coming down 20 percent, is that a one to one comparison? Well, it surely gives you an idea that there's still a lot of obstacles out there that needs to be cleared 
but at least lower volumes and also on key trade lanes, especially into to North America, of course, will be key and of highest essence to clear those in order also to see continuing freight rates falling or declining, not rapidly, but at least gradually as, uh, as we continue. So, uh, so expect the volume weakness for the rest of the year. That seems to be, well, I guess consensus will also have this next time around. It seems to catch up with reality at some point in time. So expect that that demand will not fall into massive negative territory. We have literally never seen that for container shipping, but there's a first time for everything like that, but it's not on the, on the cards yet. But we may see if we get that, say, perfect storm of headwind continue to, to blow right at us, then obviously I need to change my views as well when, when I get wiser on, on that one. Time will tell only. We're all hoping to get wiser, Peter. You mentioned there that the short term, well, the spot rate market is, has seen some big decline so far this year. How has that been reflected in long term rates on those key east west trades? Let me single out one of the uh, the most watched also uh, trends on on the Senator platform out of Far East going down to the east coast of South America, because that have perhaps given us a little bit of more clearer crystal ball view uh, when spot markets turn south and even fall below that of long term freight rates, because that happened already back in uh, back in March, and what we have seen ever since. It's actually that the long-term contract rates have also declined steadily, gradually, but also quite firmly since then with a clear indication of, okay, now we see a turn in the market. We see not only, a, say, a very delayed catch-up by the contract rates to the highly elevated spot rates, but a gradually decline from the peaks that we just saw a couple of months ago, all in excess of $10,000 per box. But what we have also seen in, uh, in June so far, is that the tide has turned on the spot market for this uh, Far East to South America, East Coast uh, trend. So we now have spot rates back above those of the long-term freight rates. Uh, it's still too early to see whether that will turn the tide also for the long-term contract rates. To me, I don't think so. I think we are in for a uh, couple of months and quarters of increased volatility on the spot market, but also with a tendency to see that that long-term contract rates most likely have peaked now on most trades, at least how we how we spot them with uh, with long-term contract rates signed within the most recent three months. So, so I think this is a good illustration. More and more freight rates, more 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 trade lanes, have a narrowing gap between the short-term market and the long-term market, and it's it's much more narrow than it has been for two years now. So surely. Uh, that change is, is just about to happen. And I think the coming uh, the coming quarters will definitely prove that, uh, that the trend is clear. It is it's coming down from where it was just well, half a year ago, approximately. And of course, the macroeconomic headwinds are, are only going to, to be, well, an improved catalyst behind uh, that development. Peter, now, how binding exactly are these long-term contracts? And I ask that because a Zenitor survey found that if the container shipping market changed significantly, which is what you're indicating in terms of this softening demand, 71% of your customers said they would renegotiate existing contracts. 11% said they would break their current contract and look for better options. So that's 82% in total saying they won't stick with these contracts if the market moves. Are they not enforceable? I think they're all enforceable, but the real question is, of course, will they actually end up in a court case? 
We are seeing a lot of mitigation done on contracts, also in the container shipping market, but historically it's not been the key issue. But what remains a very relevant point for, for all the tendering that, uh, that shippers are doing right now and, and going forward is of course, to make sure that your contracts hold renegotiation optionality. And that is mutually agreed because that's when you can more easily at least go into a uh, renegotiation talk saying that, okay, I want better reliability. I want lower uh, freight rates. And you will also get in exchange for that, say better volumes from me, more predictability to be fed into, to, to your systems and, and, and so on. And then the, uh, the uh, relationship between shippers and, and carriers becomes say a fruitful one from the, from the get-go rather than a, Hey, I would like lower freight rates now with say, um, no provisions uh, made for that in uh, existing contracts. That's of course, when, when things start to go sour before they even start. Uh, so I think that, uh, looking forward more than looking backwards, I think that will be of essence for everyone to, to include that of course, on top of, uh, all other. Uh, relevant clauses and optionalities to, to feed into that, like depth, uh, freight, like uh, floating bunkers, uh, etc. But I think uh, right now where there's never been, say, uh, more money at stake, uh, we may actually see also uh, some contract disputes end up in, uh, in a courtroom uh, simply because uh, the money involved have never been bigger than right now. Just looking back at those forecasts you had for volumes there, Peter, we heard a lot earlier in this podcast about the disruption at Northern European ports and, and how that might deteriorate if there's any increase at all in volumes. So let's focus on first the US and then we'll move to China. Import volumes versus 2021 have, have been steady this year, but just for our listeners, that focus has, has shifted because shippers have moved cargo a little bit earlier where they could, they've moved from the US West coast to the East coast, again, where they could, or even further north into Canada. That's mostly due to the PMA ILWU negotiations that are ongoing with that contract ending 1st of July. So what do you see, given your earlier forecast on demand softening, what happens in the US in the next few months? We normally get this peak season in the third quarter, are volumes not going to increase then? Is that what you're saying? often shippers plan well ahead. So even though we have seen inflation around for quite some time now, the uh, risk averse shippers have planned well ahead for at least a certain level of say spiking volumes as the peak season is, uh, is around us. And without doubt, I think not to jump to any conclusions here, but I see ongoing negotiations on the U S West coast for, for month ahead of us. So to that uh, extent, congestion, in my view, will stick around in the uh, US East Coast. We have only recently also seen that a carrier like uh, One High, it may not be uh, the biggest carrier of the world, uh, but they're just uh, setting up uh, a new port call in Philadelphia just to circumvent some of those mostly congested ports on the US East Coast. And, and I must say also that naturally, they are working flat out on the U.S. East Coast to to bring in those uh, those boxes. But as always, as also is the case in Europe, so is it in U.S. that a lack of truck and mostly truck drivers and getting those boxes out of the ports parameters is, is essential, especially when some shippers are bringing in 
I think Gene Soroka, the uh, LA port director, put it like that. They're putting in just in case cargoes and not only just in time and, and they are making them sit on the docks rather than taking them out of the ports. And that is not really easing anything. It's, it's on the contrary. It's what they have been fighting for a year now in Long Beach, LA in particular, but they are fighting that also on the US East Coast. So, so getting back to essence here, I think we're still in a development, a clear trend where volumes are coming down into US uh, also, but again, no falling from the sky. Uh, we're still seeing summer sales coming up, clearance of, uh, of warehouses also being handled. And we're not seeing, say, a reversal in retail sales right now. I think it's it's more important right now than ever before to avoid just taking a, a brief look at the headline figure. Uh, you need to go into the finer details. You need to make sure that retail sales is not only, say, one number. It, it actually holds several sub totals that you may want to dive into. So you do take out, say, inflation from gasoline that are not relevant to container shipping. You also take out whatever they uh, they, they buy in terms of uh, food services, stuff like that. So you only get cargo that is related to containerized goods. And the numbers that I look at are still positive in that regard. But then again, you need to, to take out the inflation part of it. We discussed just earlier. So um, low volumes for sure. It's a long journey ahead. It will also ease the bottlenecks that we see still across the North American continent. And what's the situation in China, Peter? As we've covered before on this podcast, we've had these lockdowns, particularly in Shanghai. That's affected the logistics system in China. You're saying a lot of US shippers have imported early. Does that mean that there isn't a backlog out of Shanghai or other Chinese ports that there's not this big surge of cargo coming when we might normally have the peak season. And I, I say that with the context of this, the same Zenitor survey I mentioned earlier has reported that 69% of customers expect that backlog to be there and for it to be shipped from Shanghai as those lockdowns are eased, which they, they have been to a, a degree now. So what's happening there? I would love to see that a lot of things is happening right now, but I fail really to see it. Surely there are backlogs and our customers expecting freight rates to, to, to go up on the back of this, say, easing of COVID restrictions around Shanghai. I mean, there's of course more to it than meets the eye here because they may look at different trade lanes. They may have a specific set of logistics that they take care of. So some of them may actually already now see freight rates going up while others are seeing something flat and well, me, myself, and I are looking at sliding freight rates across the board as a general trend that is also connected to it, the gradual easing of, of Shanghai, which is which is not really that gradual. I think it's a it's a bumpy ride. We do not need to go back only was it that last weekend or the weekend before that uh, where truck drivers again were not allowed to to carry out uh, the the business they they do so well in normal times. So there's surely disruption still going on throughout the east coast of China. Fairly steady. We have seen freight rates leaving China right now for overseas. Uh, and I think that's due to what was already produced and what was then shipped. But if you look at intra-Asian freight rates, which, which is a mystery of its own, where you really need to, to know your trade lanes and go into the details of how the supply chain intra-Asia works before the finished goods leave the region for North Europe or for North America, that's when you really get to see a little bit of trick. And that's 
that's basically why I, throughout these past months, have been more uh, tepid in my expectations for a massive backlog. Uh, I know I've been in opposition to a, to a huge uh, chunk of people out there believing that there's massive volumes to be shipped as soon as possible once the gates again open in, in Shanghai. But I must say that that I still haven't seen that. Um, I would be super proud to be proven wrong on this and, and see, uh, say, demand spike again at the benefit of, of all Sineta customers and global shippers. But I, I do not think that is, is going to happen yet. So let's see about those uh, 69%. Hopefully they will be happy to be disappointed and not being right on that one. President Z is a lot riding on this zero COVID policy. He's hoping to get a third term confirmed in November when party leaders meet. Would it be wise to maybe expect that we will see ongoing disruptions around COVID lockdowns in China, at least until then? I think so. Very short reply for once. <laughs> I for sure expect more COVID lockdowns in China also for the second half of the year. These disruptions in China or in European ports, as, as we discussed earlier, it feels like this is all a bit whack-a-mole. Every time we see an improvement in one part of the supply chain, Another disruption picks up somewhere else. We're even seeing rail shipments going to Europe via Russia again, such are the, the sea freight challenges for shippers at the moment. How does any of this improve if we're looking a bit more long-term? How do we get a reset and some relief for shippers from these higher prices? Do new vessel deliveries, which a lot of them are scheduled next year, does that help? Or is this purely just a bottleneck issue? Maybe we have to wait for demand to soften, as you've mentioned. I think mostly we need to have patience for demand to come down. Then subsequently for uh, the global carriers also to redeploy ships to to their natural habitat where they once sailed pre-pandemic. Only then will we get, say, freight rates down to where they once were, perhaps even lower than that. Fingers crossed, uh, all going well. Uh, if uh, If we really see that, say, redeployment of capacity to where it once was and put into perspective that uh, that this whole freight rate bubble, in lack of a better word, is brought around by a, a huge bias in demand. Once that is eased and once we see uh, more shipping capacity being fed into to a market that have not grown fundamentally from that perspective uh, in, in, in several years now, there is a likelihood of freight rates on-spot market as well as long-term market to, to come down significantly, what we see then. But in between now and then, there's always options for shippers uh, around there. Right now, uh, as you know, Senator is also covering uh, air freight and air cargo. And we certainly see, I would call it a hybrid option being uh, put to the tables also from, uh, from several freight forwarders. I'm sure we'll also see carriers uh, adding that to the offering shortly. But this combination of sea and air Basically, because there's also a clear development in terms of how can we get around these congested coasts of North America? Well, let's fly the stuff in. So you basically ship it out of uh, Vietnam or or Shanghai, go to Dubai, where they have plenty of freighters ready to take your cargo. Be aware, of course, that you cannot bring dangerous goods on board an airplane, but you can bring that if it's normally dry goods, get it on an airplane and get it to to any North American or North European destinations with that with a hybrid. It brings you faster service, but of course also say a more expensive service than than all sea, but a cheaper one than than all air. So I think we will begin to see also the making of some of those investments that carriers have put 
to work in the market already, but we'll see more of that. Uh, if I may say that I'm a little bit disappointed so far with the investments made by the carriers because they made pocket loads of money last year. They are making even more this year, but they need to spend them wisely. They need to make sure that the offerings that they put to the table to global shippers going forward will be smart, will be intelligent, will be timely placed, and of course, uh, always say economically viable in any form, whether that'll be, say, buy more freighters, buy, say, integrated logistics uh, companies to attach to, to your port-to-port offering, uh, offerings right now. I think that's a part of, say, the near-term one year, one and a half, two years, perhaps. Um, when you say they should invest wisely, you so you think they're being a bit cautious or are you expecting a, a flurry of activity? Maybe a bit more consolidation in the logistics service providers market later this year as carriers flash the cash. You are absolutely right. And I think actually, even though you and I as, as, as normal investors are looking at the drop falling stock prices everywhere right now, that may be the catalyst also for carriers now to get more value out of their money. Because of course, during the past 12 months, those logistics companies and, and those air cargo operators have definitely also put a huge price tag to, to their business because they knew that liners had the cash to burn and they were eager also to spend it wisely. But definitely uh, it, at some point in time, we have also seen carriers hesitating because they could not see the return on the investment uh, that they would like to. I mean, normally, I mean, go back a couple of years, you would not see liners invest in anything where they had a, say, payback time exceeding 12 months, even though it may from the outside look like a no-brainer to bring on board, say, scrubbers on your, your ships. And just look at the markets right now. I mean, all of those ships without a scrubber is burning cash much faster than those that are capable of, of burning, say, heavy sulfur fuel oil and, and do not need to buy the $1,000 per metric ton of, uh, say, refined fuels right now. So, so put the money smartly into the market and you may not get your investment back 12 months from now, but if that's two or three years, then it, then it makes sense. So I expect, say, more m and activity go up. I do not expect, say, mergers within, uh, say, the ocean shipping part of it because they are all loaded. No one uh, is really seeking to cash in on that. But, uh, but they will buy into, uh, to say, medium-sized, smaller-sized logistics providers, freight forwarders, where they are already with a stronghold. So if a given carrier is strong in Eastern Europe or um, North America, they will put their money into, uh, to, uh, say, integrated companies in those places because, of course, they have spent more than a decade now weeding out those extra activities. And they, as they are now trying to bring some of them back, they need to do so in a smarter way than the one they divested a decade ago, approximately. So more to come on that regard. And my notebook is, uh, is ready with a few empty pages still to keep on track of that because I think it will be super exciting times. And I just say to listeners, that's something that uh, Lodestar Premium is covering day in, day out, uh, led by Ali Passetti. And I'd urge you to check out exactly who these targets might be, because when you have a, a fall in stock market and you have all this cash sitting around, there will definitely be some activity. Peter, Joe Biden has been quite outspoken of late, and he's also uh, signed into law the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. What do you think of his various comments and is this new act is is this good for anyone apart from u.s agricultural exporters 
in short, I don't think so. But I think Chairman, FMC Chairman Maffei will, will for sure spend a lot of time over the coming month really explaining what's in the final details of the uh, Ocean Shipping uh, Reform Act. For Senator uh, customers, I'm sure that uh, the tension and demerge rates, uh, any potential change to that will be scrutinized uh, because that seems to be a part of the, uh, say, scrutiny around fees and surcharges. We know that the uh, Ocean Shipping Reform Act is not necessarily targeting base rates, and that they have found out that that this whole uh, high freight rate environment that we have seen recently is, uh, is is come about by, say, global supply demand dynamics to some sort. So, so it's not say a clampdown on carriers' illegal actions, but it's a little bit of say easing business for especially the U.S. agricultural exporters, which I think should stand out as the sole winners to this. And we all know that they have also been the most vocal in crying foul here. Uh, they think that they have definitely left out on some opportunities for, for exporting their goods as, as carriers have prioritized bringing back empties rather than bringing back their goods for wherever destination uh, it, it would take them. But I think we need to be patient also in, in terms to see, say, real uh, significant impact from this. And at the end of the day, I think you should also be aware that naturally, uh, as, as said earlier, in terms of renegotiating contract, something like this will naturally also come at a cost. So U.S. agricultural exporters may also find a price attached to this law in the end if it becomes something that carriers must do rather than something that they uh, they can do, say, without any reasonable ground not to do so. I think that was more or less uh, my, my reading of, of the text, that if they have a really good excuse for not doing it, it'll be all right. Uh, so, so I think there will be say, more jobs on uh, Capitol Hill to scrutinize and, and ask carriers, why did you not bring those boxes to our U.S. exporters? Well... Time will tell how significant this will be, but uh, but as we have also discussed in the past, Mike, I think the regulatory headwind uh, for for carriers mostly uh, is is most present in in North America, and we have seen this right now. Whether it'll also impact U.S. importers, I don't think so. But uh, let's see about it. So uh, finally, Peter, let's let's just fast forward to mid September. Can you please give us? three predictions, which I promise I will hold you to. What are the three things shippers, forwarders, and carriers can bank on happening in these next three to four months? And you can't say more consolidation because we've already covered that. <laughs> can I say that, uh, that we will see more shipping lines on the shirts of uh, football players across Europe? You can say that. <laughs> that could be one of them. Uh, I definitely uh, see that in Formula One, for instance, where MSC is all of a sudden one of the uh, the big sponsors around. But uh, but if we are going to focus on something which may be more integrated into the logistics supply chains, I'm afraid it's it it to me it seems like a safe bet that more COVID lockdowns in China will appear. It will disrupt logistics out of the world's most important uh, nation in terms of uh, containerized goods. So, uh, so expect uh, volatility uh, around uh, the the exports uh, leaving uh, China, and I guess that also leaves, say, more discussions to be made in global boardrooms about making your supply chains resilient uh, going forward. Uh, should I make investments outside of China, and not only in China, as has been the case for quite a few decades? So, so that. If I may be, that's the number one. The second one, 
I do not see a brief solution to the uh, labor negotiations on U.S. West Coast. Uh, so when we meet in mid-September and we uh, do stocks on uh, on this one, I would say that we could still talk about automation on the U.S. West Coast as the one problem they didn't solve yet. And finally, I guess, looking at Europe, lower demand into Europe. We see now German producer prices shooting all the way up to, I think, 33% year on year. That is definitely a negative also to demand heading into North Europe and, and the uh, the critical uh, nation of Germany. So so lower demand into Europe. I think I would take that as, uh, as my, my first, uh, sorry, my third thing to watch out for by mid-September. Peter Sand, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haight for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.